Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the way you have showered so many blessings upon us, gifts that you've given to us. Lord, as we're about to enter a season that we will call Thanksgiving, we pause this morning and we thank you just for the way you've treated us as your children. We honor you in this service of worship. This is about you. The songs are about you. The giving that we give is about you. We do, Lord, anticipate that you will also give to us as well, but, but we're here because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We know that to be true. But we also know that giving can sometimes be stressful, dangerous even, if you're a husband trying to find for your wife the perfect gift. Let me explain. Uh, A man by the name of Herb Forst from New York submitted this little piece to the Reader's Digest of things not to buy your wife. Number one, don't buy anything that plugs in. Anything that requires electricity is seen as utilitarian. Number two, don't buy clothes that involve sizes. (laughs) The chances are one in 7,000 that you will get her size right, and your wife will be offended the other 6,999 times. Do I look like a size 16? She might say. Too small a size won't cut it either. I haven't worn that size in 20 years. Number three, avoid all things useful. The new silver polish advertised to save hundreds of hours is not going to win you any points. Number four, don't buy anything that involves weight loss or self-improvement. She'll perceive a six-month membership to a diet center or a health club as a suggestion that she's overweight. Number five, don't buy jewelry. The jewelry your wife wants, you can't afford. And the jewelry you can afford, she doesn't want. (laughs) Number six, don't spend too much. How do you think we're going to afford that, she'll ask. Number seven, don't spend too little. She won't say anything, but she's going to think, is that all I'm worth? (laughs) Uh, I also came across something put out by American Express Corporation. They did a survey asking people, what is the worst Christmas gift you could ever receive? I was... I was amused, I was interested to discover that what tops the list as the worst Christmas gift is a fruitcake. In fact, it is higher as the worst gift than even the category called no gift at all. It's worse to get a fruitcake than no gift at all. In the survey, American Express said, what do you do with a bad gift? How do you dispose of a bad gift? 30% said hide it in the closet, 21% said return it, 19% said give it away. So now I'm thinking back to the fruitcake, there's a good chance that if you get a fruitcake this Christmas, it's recycled. (laughs) Which explains why those things taste so bad. You know, I'm just 
putting it all together. Um, it's not easy for us to find the perfect gift. It's no problem for God to find the perfect gift. God knows exactly what we need. Now, all of that is an introduction for what we're about to look at in John 17, because in this chapter, the word give or given in one of those two forms is found no less than 17 times in this single chapter. So it is a major theme. We're going to look at the first five verses. We just touched on verse one last week. I mentioned we could spend a year, I will spare you that, going through this chapter, but we will spend some weeks on it. In the first five verses, Jesus um, asks for a gift, requests something from the Father. And then he mentions three other gifts that are given, two from the Father to the Son, one from the Son to you and I. So these are gifts that keep on giving. But just notice that word and how often it is used. Let's just look at the first eight verses. We won't go through the chapter, but I want you to observe with me. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should Give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men that you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And on and on and on it goes through the chapter. By the way. It's okay to pray for yourself. Jesus did it. It is not unspiritual. Jesus' entire life was marked by prayer generally as well as specifically. Generally, we know that he prayed on one occasion all night. On another occasion, he got up early in the morning. So his, his, his whole life was marked generally by Dependence upon the Father. Prayer. His life was also marked by prayer specifically. Here he gets very specific. And I think when we pray, we ought to be specific. I don't think a prayer like, Well, Lord, you know every need, spoken and unspoken, so just bless everyone everywhere with everything. We'll cut. We'll cut it. It won't really do much good. Be specific. What if, what if you were to try that at a restaurant? What if you walked into a restaurant and said, I have a general food need. Bless me. They would know what to give to you. You are specific. You point to a menu and you say, this and I'll have that. Jesus is specific. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. 
I mentioned he requests one gift and he mentions three others. Let's go through them. First of all, the gift of glory. Verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Here's the request. Glorify your son. That your son may also glorify you. Now tie that verse together with verse 5. And now, O Father... Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now we, we have a couple things going on here. Jesus prays for glory and when he does, he has two different things in mind. Number one, he has the glory of the cross. I'll explain. Number two, he has the glory that will come after the cross, heaven. That's verse five. The glory of the cross, I think, is mentioned in verse one. Glorify me. Lord, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He is thinking, and we touched on this last week, the glory moment of the cross has come. Father, we've planned this since the beginning of time. And now we're here. This is it. It's glory hour. It's the time for the countdown. Let's get on with it. Because he knows that his dying on the cross will open the door to the salvation of millions of people. For the next few thousand years. So he prays for the glory of the cross. Now you might be thinking, how is the death of Jesus Christ glorious? Well, you know, that's not really hard to understand, even from a human viewpoint, is it? Some men are not appreciated until after they die. They're not appreciated in life, but if they give their life as a soldier or for some cause, once they die, they are nobler in death than they ever imagined being in life. Abraham Lincoln had lots of enemies, very vocal enemies. One was his minister of war, Edwin Stanton, who made no bones about criticizing the president publicly on many occasions, called him a crude and an uncouth man. But when Lincoln was shot and Edwin Stanton stood over the body of Abraham Lincoln, with tears in his eyes, he looked down and he said, There lies the greatest leader of men this world has ever seen. What Stanton did not acknowledge in life, he now acknowledged in Lincoln's death. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a centurion who watched the whole thing. And as soon as Jesus was dead, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He didn't say that while he was alive. He didn't see that while he was alive, but now he sees it. So that's not hard to understand how a person in death can be seen as more glorious. But that's not really the glory of the cross that Jesus is speaking of. What he is speaking of is the fact that this will bring God ultimate glory because it will demonstrate once and for all that there is no limit to which God would would go in demonstrating his love. That his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his love will even go to the nth degree. You see, if Jesus would have just come to this earth and stopped short of the cross, let's say he would have come to this earth and just smiled a lot and pet little kids on the head and and said a few nice words and lived an exemplary life and did not die on a cross, then we could say, aha, there is a level of love to which God will not go for us. He will not die. He will not give his life. He will not sacrifice his son. But 
Now it's different. Now we can see the father who would look down at his son as he's on a cross, bleeding, covered with the spit of the men he came to save. And we go, his love knows no limit. And truly, we would say what Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 8, if God did not spare his only son but gave him up for us, how will he not then freely give us all things? If he will give us that gift, sky's the limit. Glorify your son. That's the, that's the first meaning of the gift of glory. The second is different. Look at verse 5 a little more carefully. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's talking now about a prehistoric, pre-existent glory that he shared with the Father. It's hard for us to imagine. We can only dimly imagine what it's like to leave heaven and come to earth. The closest I ever came is the time I went to India. I'd never been to a third world country. I've been to other places. I'd never been to a third world country. And India is as third world as they get. When we were flying into Mumbai, which used to be called then Bombay, I remember as we were flying in, I said to a passenger, I said, now we're way up in the air. We're still circling. I said, what is that smell? We're up in the sky. He said, you are smelling the city of Mumbai. I said, you've got to be kidding. He goes, there's a slum down there with over one million people just in the slum, not the city. There's millions in the city. Just the slum of this city has over a million people. And I did a little research. It's so congested, that slum, that in some places there's 18,000 people per acre living in on top of each other in little plastic bag walls and cardboard walls and um, the squalor and the feces in the streets next to their water supply. And it's just it's unbelievable to touch down and then to walk. And I walked through those slums. And I thought, this is their daily existence. It's only my temporary inconvenience, but it's their daily existence. And I thought, I cannot wait to leave this place. I want to go back home. I'd never known. I, I, all I knew was America. Okay, so now that's just a dim little insight into leaving the glories of heaven and coming to a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. A feeding trough of animals in Bethlehem. To go from glory, from the throne to the manger. And it's much more than just that. It's... It's what Jesus had to put up with for 33 years, what he had to see in terms of rebellion and sin and hatred against God and his ways and certainly against himself as God's son. Jesus came into his own, the Bible says, his own people, and his own did not receive him. So here is Jesus longing for that glory back, longing to go back to where he had come from, the glories of heaven. That's what he knew. That was home turf. Sometimes we get a little glimpse into the glory of Jesus while he was on earth. Think back to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Remember the story? Jesus takes a few of his disciples and on top of a high mountain he is transfigured with Moses and Elijah. This is what the Bible says. Jesus' appearance changed 
so that his face shone like the sun and his clothing became dazzling white. We read that and go, wow, that's a miracle. How cool would that be to see the miracle? I look at it differently. I don't think it was a miracle that he shined then. I think it was a miracle that he didn't shine all the time. But it just leaked out every now and again, like here. That's the glory he longed for in verse 5. Question. Did the Father answer his prayer? Oh, yes, he did. Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. The first martyr, Stephen, when he was about to be stoned, the Bible says he looked up and he saw heaven open and he said, Look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw him in his glorified state, not his earthly state. And when we get to heaven, Revelation chapter 5 tells us what the anthem of heaven will be like. Worthy is the Lamb. Here's the glory. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and as such as are in the sea, and all that is in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, put verse 5, couch verse 5 now in that. Give, give me the glory that I had with you before the world ever was. Fast forward. There's coming a day in heaven when the new Jerusalem will be the capital city. And John said, That city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates it, and the Lamb is its light. So why is Jesus longing for that glory? Because that's home, man. That's his home turf. That's his environment. That's what he knew. That's why he refer- we call it heaven. He referred to it as my Father's house. In my Father's house there are many mansions. God, I want to glorify you, and then I want to go home. That's what he's praying. And today, that's where he is. He's back home. And he's made a promise to you. He said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, this is what I want you to just think of. If Jesus Christ, who had come from glory to the earth for 33 years in a temporary situation, longed to go back to glory, longed to go back to heaven, just think about that. If you have a loved one who has died or is dying, who is a believer, that's what they're going to. If Jesus knew what it was like and he longed for it with that kind of depth, how cool it must be. That's why I believe, I've said it before, but I believe it, that the last breath on earth, as labored as it might be, as painful as it might be, and I've watched my own family take those last breaths, I'm convinced if they know Christ, immediately their next breath is, wow, something like that. 
I've heard people say, oh, heaven's going to be so boring. I don't want to sit on a cloud and play a harp. Well, guess what? I don't either. A guitar, maybe. A harp, no. A ukulele, I can do that, but not a harp. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be glorious. That's why when people who know Christ die, I am sad not for them. I'm sad for the family. I'm sad for us. I'm sad for the loss. But for that person who is in the presence of God, I envy them. I don't go, that poor person, he died, he's in heaven. Oh, yeah. I'm real sad for that. I cannot be sad. The worst thing that happened to them had turned out to be the best thing. They're in glory. We suffer. I'm not minimizing that, but not, not that person. This, then, is the gift of glory that Jesus prays for. He mentions three others. Here's the second, the gift of authority. Verse 2. As you have given him, that is, you, Father, have given the Son, him, authority over all flesh. Stop right there. This is a gift Jesus in prayer acknowledges the Father has given him, authority over all flesh. How much authority did Jesus have over all flesh? Good answer, all. Because before he leaves the earth, Matthew 28, he says to his disciples these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That covers it all. Every bit of it. Think of the authority that was displayed in Jesus' life. First of all, when Jesus taught people, he taught with authority. He gave the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 7, at the very end, it says these words, And the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His voice had to be something to command thousands of people without a PA system. Now, I cheat. I have a microphone and a speaker system, and that's very helpful. But Jesus had thousands of people outdoors with ambient noise, and his voice had to command them, and there must have been a certainty and a persuasiveness and a power to the tone of his voice when he spoke. And I often imagine that when I read Jesus saying anything. He spoke with authority, not as the scribes. In other words, he didn't hide behind the opinions of the scribes He'd say things like, you have heard that it was said by those of old, but I say unto you, and he nailed it. He spoke with authority. Second, he forgave people with authority. He never said, well, I hope you can get forgiven for that. He said to a paralyzed man one day, your sins are forgiven you. Be of good cheer. And people around heard that and they said, who who does this guy think he is, God? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, how come you guys are thinking evil thoughts? Just so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, you're healed, rise, take up your bed and walk. I want to show you that I have power in the spiritual realm by making a display in the physical realm that nobody else could do. So when Jesus said, I forgive you, or you are forgiven, there was that air of certitude in his voice that caused the persons to walk with their heads raised and walk away, I'm forgiven. Also, Jesus had authority over the natural world. If you read any of the Gospels, you will come across miracles. 
He will heal the sick. He will raise the dead. On one occasion, he spoke to a storm and said, peace, be still, and just calmed right down. And remember the disciples said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Ever thought what it was like to be a disciple as you are learning, you're coming to grips with, it's dawning on you. I'm dealing here with God in a human body. The kind of power and authority that he displayed. Not only that, but he showed that he had authority not only over the natural world, but over the supernatural world. People who were oppressed by demons, he would cast them out. One day he was in the synagogue and a guy there in the worship service was possessed. And Jesus cast the demon out. The people there said, what a word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They, they knew about dark forces. They just didn't know what to do with them. And here comes this guy with one sentence and taken care of. Power. Authority. Not only that, but Jesus had power over life and death. Not just other people's, but his own. Jesus, on one occasion, after telling the fact that he's going to go be crucified and that he'll rise from the dead, then he explained that he himself has sovereign authority and control over his own life and death. Listen to these words, John chapter 10. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. So he has all authority. Oh, I left one out. He has authority over judgment. Over judgment. Jesus said in John 5, The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to his Son. Now, in hearing those words, After noting that Jesus had authority over every other realm, natural world, supernatural world, etc., etc., now when Jesus says, oh, by the way, I also have authority over judgment, it would behoove the person listening to those words to get right with Jesus. It would behoove the person listening to those words to say, not how can I escape his authority, because you can't. All authority means all authority. No, rather you should say, how should I respond to it? And I'll give you the answer. You should respond to it willingly, voluntarily. If he has all power and all authority and will ultimately be your judge, and the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, why not do it willingly now instead of by force later? When I was preparing this message, a line came to my mind from William Henley's famous poem called Invictus, which says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Yeah, right. You might feel that way temporarily, but Jesus says, I have authority over all flesh. It was a gift that he acknowledged the Father has given him. 
So we've covered two. The gift of glory he asked for. The gift of authority he acknowledges that he has. Here's the third. The gift of humanity. Ah, this is a good one. Look at verse 2 again. As you, Father, have given him, Jesus the Son, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, now watch this, to as many as you have given him. I went through this chapter and I found that phrase seven times here. As many as you have given him. I don't want to dig all seven out because of time, but I I want you to notice a few. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Let me ask you something, fellow Christians. If you're a Christian, have you ever thought of yourself as being a love gift from the Father given to the Son? That is exactly what you are. Now, from an earthly perspective, when we come to Christ, when we receive Christ, we, we, we see it this way. I've given my life to God. That's not how God sees it. God sees it. No, I, the Father, have given your life to my Son. See, God the Father knew that His Son needed a group, a people. Jesus called it The church upon this rock, he said, I will build my church. It means called out ones, called out from humanity to be that microcosm of humanity, of believing ones. You are a love gift. Give your life to Christ. God God gives you to Christ. That's from heaven's perspective. You are a love gift. Jesus gave this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man has found it, he hides it. And then, in his joy, he sells all that he has and he buys that field. What is that a parable of? I've heard people say, oh, that's a parable of us finding God. And we we get rid of everything to have God. He's worth us getting rid of everything to have Him. I don't think that's the meaning of the parable. First of all, you can never buy God. Second of all, you don't have enough worth anything to sell to get him. Third, when Jesus unlocks the meaning of the parable, he says this, the field is the world. The field, you don't buy the world to get God. It's a picture of God, not you and me. It's a picture of God buying the world through his son's blood on the cross So that he can find the treasure in the field, which he says is you and I. We're the treasure. It's his people. It's his church. It's the treasure. It's worth it. For the joy that was set before him, the Bible says, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He saw you and he thought, this is worth the pain. They will be mine. And the Father gave you to the Son. It's the gift of humanity. Here's the fourth and final gift. It's the gift of eternity. 
Now, this one's different from the previous three. The first one is the gift Jesus asked for from the Father. The second two are simply acknowledgments that the Father has given authority and humanity to Jesus. But this fourth gift is the gift that we get from Jesus. Verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then in verse 3, it's explained, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So do you see the difference here? This is the gift we receive from Jesus. Oh, there are many more gifts than this, but this is the first one. Others follow. The first one, the most important one, is we get the gift of eternal life. Now, let's put it all together. Let's connect all these dots of what we've been talking about this morning. Jesus says, Father, I want my glory back so that that will bring ultimate glory to you. How? How will that work? Simply by Jesus exercising his authority that came from the Father. He'll raise himself from the dead. Then taking the humanity called the church that he's going to work with. And with his authority... And with the humanity that God has given him, he's going to take that into eternity. And that'll be a theme that runs throughout this chapter. That he would give eternal life to as many as the Father has given to him. A word about that term, eternal life. When we hear about eternal life, you know what we typically think of? We think about life that goes on and on and on and on and on, sort of like the ever-ready bunny. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And that's eternal life. It's life that just keeps going and going and going. It's longevity. That really doesn't quite cut it. The word in Greek, the two words, ionios, zoe, I like to look at it better than saying eternal life, age-abiding life. It is a quality of life. That begins now. And it does go on and on and on. But it's a quality that begins now and continues forever. And you need to see it that way. Because technically, every person on earth, even the most wicked person, has eternal life. Their life will go on and on and on and on. But not in heaven. This is something different. This is a quality of life that begins now and carries all throughout eternity. And I think I would tie this phrase, eternal life, with something Jesus said in John chapter 10. I have come, he said, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I like to say, to the max. One translation says, to the brim and overflowing. I have come that you might have life. That means now, to the brim and overflowing. Henry David Thoreau said, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Jesus said, But my plan is that they would have life to the brim and overflowing. I wonder if you live in Thoreau's camp or Jesus' camp. Eternal life. Now notice something in verse 3. Jesus describes eternal life not chronologically, not expansively, but relationally. Look at how he defines it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. See, that's something now. Not that they will know, but that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom 
you have sent. When the Bible here talks about knowing God, it does not mean knowing information about God or having an awareness of God. It means a personal experiential relationship with God. Eternal life begins now by knowing God through Jesus Christ and it lasts forever and ever and ever. It's when you receive the gift and then there's more to follow. By the way, a gift is only worth something if you receive it. Am I right? If somebody says, here's a gift, and you go, huh, and you don't grab it, receive it, open it, use it, so what? So Jesus is willing to give, verse 2, eternal life. And he will give it to all those the Father has given to him. That's election. The gift has to be received. And then there's more to follow. I'm going to close with a little story I came across. It's about a man who went shopping. It's Christmas time, not now, but when this story took place. A few days before Christmas, and this, this guy re- recognizes that there's some people on his Christmas li- list that he didn't buy for, and so now he's a little bit guilty, and he thinks, okay, i got to go to the store and pick up that last-minute gift. You know what that's like. Okay. The malls are crowded. The store he goes is super crowded. Can't find a parking space. Finally finds one. As he's walking, he's thinking, my feet are tired. Why did I pick this day? Why am I doing this? The lines are long. He stands in a long cashier line. And as he's standing there, there's two little kids in front of him. He guesses the boy is about 10 and the little girl, probably a sister, is about 5. And what he notices is just how filthy they are. Disheveled. Their hair's messed up. There's remnants of whatever meal they last ate on their mouths. Their clothes don't fit. They're dirty. So obviously they haven't had new ones for a while. And finally the line moves to where the cashier now waits on these two children. Here's the story. That will be $6.09, the cashier said. The boy laid his crumpled dollars atop the stand while he emptied his pockets. He finally came up with $3.12. I guess we'll have to put them back, he bravely said. We will come back some other time, maybe tomorrow. With that statement, a soft sob broke from the little girl. But Jesus would have loved those shoes, she cried. Well, we'll go home and work some more. Don't cry, we'll come back, he said. Well, quickly I handed three dollars to the cashier. These children had been in line a long time, and after all, it was Christmas. Suddenly, a pair of arms came around me, and a small voice said, Thank you, sir. I looked down. What did you mean when you said Jesus would like the shoes? I asked. The small boy answered, Our mommy is sick and going to heaven. Daddy said she might go before Christmas to be with Jesus. Then the girl spoke. My Sunday school teacher said the streets in heaven are shiny gold like these shoes. Won't mommy be beautiful walking on those streets to match these shoes? My eyes flooded as I looked into her tear-streaked face. Yes, I said, I'm sure she will. Silently, I thank God for using these children to remind me of the true spirit of giving. God gave the greatest gift. 
It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift of His Son on a cross that allows Him to give eternal life. And many more follow. It begins now, but enables us to walk the streets of heaven forever. Lord, thank You. Thank You for the gift. Thank You for Your Son. And thank you for that most famous of all verses that sums it up so perfectly. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Here Jesus acknowledges that, Father. Here we are talking to you even as Jesus was talking to you 2,000 years ago. As he was asking for that gift of glory, acknowledging the gift of authority and humanity. We're thankful for the gift of eternity, for eternal life, age-abiding life. It begins now and carries us all the way to those streets of gold that that little boy and girl spoke of. Lord, I, I do pray, we do pray for anyone with us this morning who, who doesn't know Jesus. They've got information. They know about you. They know about him. They have an awareness of an historical figure by that name. But that knowledge is not personal. It is not experiential. I pray, Lord, that that would be changed. That some would receive the gift of eternal life. Open the package. Delight in its contents. Live the life as a follower of Christ. I pray, I pray, Father, that people who come here will not be content with just coming to church, but be content with nothing less than walking with Christ and knowing God and knowing Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.